Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this time of year when we uh, began to anticipate and think about the gift that you gave us in Jesus Christ. You sent your Son, the greatest gift, and for that reason we celebrate, we anticipate, and we are encouraged because he is indeed the king of all the world and the universe, and he is our king and our savior. And we pray, Father, that you would bless us now as we think about our community that you've put together as a church, as the people of God. Help us, Lord, to understand that better and to apply it better so that we might reap all the benefits that you've given us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This is our third installment of our lessons on life in our communion. And today I want to focus on the topic of worship. I'll just begin by reading two verses here. One out of Psalm Psalm 119, verse 1. says, Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. That kind of captures what I want to get to today. That it's... We assemble here with God's people, we congregate, we come together physically, and we do it to praise the Lord, and we do it to praise the Lord with our whole hearts. Uh, Psalm 22, 2, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And there's many other passages of scripture that place an emphasis upon the assembly or the congregation, our gathering together the corporate assembly of God's people. There is an assumption throughout Scripture that the people of God will gather, they will congregate or assemble for several reasons, but central among those reasons is corporate worship. This this necessarily involves geography, going somewhere, leaving our homes to come together, to be together, uh, I grew up in Broadmoor Baptist Church in Shreveport, and the associate pastor there who would always open the service every Sunday always quoted Psalm 122, verse 1. Uh, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And again in Acts 2, verse 46 through 47, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Uh, In our little booklet that's available out in the foyer for uh, you and for visitors titled A Guide to Our Worship, it opens with these words. Our desire is that all Christians will unite in worshiping the triune God of Scripture in spirit and in truth, both in the midst of this congregation and throughout the world. Worship is the self-conscious, wholehearted activity of ascribing honor and praise to the living and true God for who he is and for what he has done. The weekly Lord's Day worship service is the occasion where God's people assemble publicly to serve him corporately as well as the place where God serves his people in a special way. There is nothing more important in the life of the church than worship. It is central to who we are as the people of God. It is here that we begin each new week, acknowledging that we are the people of God, 
that He is our God and that we are dependent upon Him for life and for salvation. In public worship, we formally practice together. We prepare for the week to come by coming before God, praying, singing, hearing God's Word, confessing our sins, remembering His forgiveness, receiving His instruction, giving, confessing our sins, remembering His forgiveness, receiving His instruction, giving, uh, excuse me, I'm I'm repeating myself there, uh, communing with God and with one another, renewing covenant with the Lord, and being sent forth into the world to do all these things over and over again in our daily lives. Worship is not a place for mere spectators, but rather a place for the people of God to participate in serving Him by proclaiming His worth. So today, I don't so much want to talk about, don't so much want to address family worship as I want to address corporate worship and the family. This is central for our communion. This is where we meet physically. It's also where we meet spiritually. This is the base from which we then fan out and live. Family worship is an extension of the church's corporate worship. It doesn't stand alone. And the same is true for our individual worship. We should worship God individually, but that's an extension of what we do here with the people of God. The worship of the congregation is the central or the primary thing, and the failure to understand this has diminished the influence of the church in the culture. The church is the worshiping community. She is the hub, and our families are the spokes. We're called to serve the body of Christ, and in serving Christ first, we also serve the body of Christ. So as we're serving Him, we're also serving one another. But the church doesn't exist to, uh, to, it doesn't exist to serve me first. And that's one of the problems we have in our culture is people think of the church as what's in it for me? How does the church help me? But we need to flip that around. We're called as followers of Christ to serve the body of Christ. He's already served us and calling us and making us his people. And now he has put us here to do something. And, of course, in the process, we do get served. It's like being a member of any family. Everybody benefits from being in the family, but only if everybody in the family does its share and contributes to the family. Everybody helps with the chores. Everybody helps with the meals. Everybody is cheerful. Everybody uh, is uh, engaged with one another, shows affection for one another, comforts one another. We do all those things in our nuclear families, and we should be doing all of that in the church. It's the church that teaches us how to worship and, therefore, how to live, because our lives should be lives of worship. That is declaring the worth of God, the value of following God. So we begin the first day of each week gathered together as the household or family of God in preparation for life. We should think of the Lord's Day worship as practice for life, kind of like choir practice. And today the choir will be performing uh, what they've worked on in our worship service. We'll see the fruit of their labors of having met and practiced and practiced, and then we will get the benefit from the fruit of that. Well, we meet 
every week to practice for living our lives following Christ when we leave here and go to our homes and go to our places of work. That's why we do this over and over and over, to get better and better at it. And so it provides a blueprint, an image of how to live. We're not simply doing the liturgy. Remember, liturgy is the form. Uh, We are learning to live the liturgy. Every church has a liturgy. Every church has an order or a form. And that liturgy does ultimately get lived out. Here, uh, we're learning to dance. We're learning the steps, the process, if you will, the outline. We learn to come when God calls us and to listen to Him when He speaks. We learn to respond with gratitude and thankfulness in our hearts. We practice prayer and the confession of our sins and are reminded of God's gracious pardon and absolution. That's not what just happens here on Sunday morning. That should be happening every day in your life, but we come here to see it, uh, to, to see it performed, if you will, and lived out together so that we also then know what it's like on a daily basis. Here we have the privilege of giving cheerfully and of offering up songs of praise, and we learn to receive instruction through the word preached and to remember our confession of what we believe. All, the, all this culminates in a gathering around the family table for communion. And after we practice, we're sent out with God's benediction to go to our homes and to do it all over again every day of the week. And we do all this together, not alone. So our problems began in the Garden of Eden when our first parents wanted to be their own God and and they wanted to do things their way. And we have followed in their likeness. All the problems that we have still stem from this same impulse. Uh, We give value to the wrong things. We worship the wrong things. That's the problem. That's sin. Uh, Everyone worships someone or something. And everyone reflects that worship in how they live. Our values are reflected in what we do or don't do. And um, worship is a declaration of what we value the most. So it's in our corporate worship that we are shaped together. We are shaped in communion, a common union. This is where and how culture is built. There are common ideas, there are beliefs and practices, and ideas and beliefs have consequences. They always get lived out, ultimately. In other words, we have communion. And our worship enables our views and our relationships to God, excuse me, establishes our views and our relationships to God, ourselves, our families, our neighbors, our possessions, our time, Moreover, worship is always the most central fact about any culture. So bear with me. Think about this. Every religion vies for power and vies for control of culture. And at the center of every culture is the worship of that culture's God. We can go look at any culture and by just watching how they live, how they talk, what they, how they spend their money, 
how they spend their time, we can deduce who God is. We can figure that out without a word. And so, um, uh, so I would ask you, uh, which God is our broader culture worshiping, and do you see any parallels in how the church is worshiping? If people worship the true God according to his word, if they have a conscious following of his word in their worship, then their culture will reflect that. And by their culture, I mean the one you have at your house, the way you live, the way you interact with people, the way you deal with sin, the way you rejoice, your attitude. All of those things will be reflected. Be reflected in your marriage, be reflected in your child rearing, be reflected in how you work. For if we honor the Lord in worship, being careful to follow his word, then we would expect that uh, the same people would then take heed to his word elsewhere. And if we come here and we're careful to pay attention to his word, then that's going to flow outside of here if, it, if it's sincere when it's here. It's possible to be here and sit here and let it just go in one ear and out the other, to just go through the motions. That's a big problem. The big problem that we see in Scripture, we're going to say a little bit more about that in a moment. If we ignore his word in worship, then we're going to ignore his word elsewhere. I'm always both amazed and extremely disheartened as a pastor, as a Christian, to think of how many times I've seen people who grew up in church, sometimes never miss church, were here every week, and then walk out the door and act like it never happened. Sometimes they've been here 10 years, 20 years, and then do something and you think, where have you been? What were you listening to? What, what's the deal? But that's entirely possible. So, for example, we could ignore the worship of God by just not coming to church. A lot of people do that. Just don't go. I don't think it's important. don't think corporate worship's important. may not think God's important. may not believe in God. That's one way. But we could also ignore it in attending but failing to engage. Remember our opening text talked about praising God with our whole heart? So we can be here and not be here at the same time. Any teacher knows that, right? About students, they can be present but not engaged, not really present. And that can become a habit, too. I've seen folks that I know for a fact, because I watched them year after year, sit here week after week, and they're never paying attention. They are always somewhere else. I know because they're giggling or playing with paper. or I'm not talking about little kids either. I'm talking about teenagers and older people are asleep. Everybody gets a sleepy day every now and then, okay? I know how antihistamines work. But uh, I'm not talking about the exception. I'm talking about the habit. That's the problem. Um, so we must be physically present, but we must be more than physically present. That's the hard part. If we will, uh, if we will ignore his word in that one activity that is directed, uh, directly related to his glory, and that is corporate worship, then we won't have any conscience about following his word, particularly in any other area of life. If you're able to sit here and ignore or uh, have your mind somewhere else while we're engaged in the most important thing, then why would you be engaged on Thursday 
uh, with some life matter. Why would you be thinking about God's glory at that point? So you see, how we worship, how we worship determines the very nature of the culture of the community that we as a people build. That's our family culture as well as the broader culture. So there's the church culture, then our families, and then the broader culture. So a departure from the true God begins when we fail to worship him properly. And this will be seen in casual, flippant, or heartless worship. And then it will be seen in the abandonment of God's worship, that is, forsaking the Lord's day altogether. So we are called, brothers and sisters, to live in the assembly of God's community. And I want to emphasize the word we. We are called to worship. We sing. Corporate singing is different than individual singing. Uh, There is truth, enthusiasm, joy, and strength, and all of that that comes into play in corporate singing. We pray. We confess. We are forgiven. We give. We sit under the word. We confess. Uh, We commune. And we are blessed and sent out as a people. Now, it is... We are engaged, I think most of us have heard this term in the last few years, we are engaged in cultural warfare. It's us and our God against them and their God. All wars, including culture wars, are religious wars. All wars, including culture wars, are religious wars. This is why Rome had a pantheon, a temple dedicated to all gods, all the gods, every time a new state was absorbed by Rome, their god went into the pantheon because it was an alliance. You must embrace them and their god. This led to the warfare between Rome and the church. The Christians were willing to be good citizens of Rome, but they couldn't acknowledge the other gods of the empire. This made Christians political traitors. And Christians were killed because of this treason. They were denying the theology of the empire. Thus, worship is warfare. It's where we are equipped. It's where we are trained. It's the place uh, from where we are sent out to do battle and to serve. Because of its centrality, if you neglect or forsake the corporate worship, you will lose your liberty. True freedom comes from obedience to the true God, and true worship is central to all of life. So when we start fiddling with this, we are fiddling with the world. I want to take a little course turn here and say that it's also possible for us to fall off the horse on the other side. So we can neglect the church either by not attending or being casual or flippant and so forth. But what about the overly scrupulous? That's another way... But if we're not careful, uh, we, can, we can actually hurt uh, the community. Plenty of people, including many professing Christians, and indeed neglect worship either directly by adopting casual, either directly or by adopting these casual or low views. People who claim to worship God alone in their hearts rarely worship God at all. 
And so these casual and low views undermine the community and erode its strength. And this is fatal, a fatal rot that will lead to their ruin and, if it's wide enough, to the ruin of a church. But there are other ways that we can also undermine the community, and these are often well-intentioned but corrosive nonetheless. In the pursuit of excellence and the pursuit of ideals, we can distract from the essence of what we're called to. God, for example, commanded sacrifices, even with great specificity and detail, and yet he also says that under other circumstances that he doesn't want burnt offerings and sacrifices. Hosea 6.6, For I I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Amos chapter 5, 22 and 23. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. God specifically requires, required the sacrifices they were doing, in, some, in one sense, precisely what God asked them to do. Nevertheless, God wasn't pleased. Jeremiah goes a step further in Jeremiah 7, 22-24. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. This is, so this is prior to that. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice. And I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. God calls for form, but form without substance is formalism, and he hates formalism. We can become so focused on the form that we forget what corporate or community worship is all about. Psalm 51, 16 through 17. For you desire, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Now I want to be clear. Bible isn't telling us particularly like in the Old Testament, okay, well, then you don't need to do the sacrifices. No, you need to do them well. You need to do them with your heart. You need to do them as they were intended. Pastor Bradley shared a quote from D.A. Carson with me a while back, and I think it provides an essential reminder. Although there are things that can be done to enhance corporate worship, there is a profound sense in which excellent worship cannot be attained merely by pursuing excellent worship. In the same way that according to Jesus, you cannot find yourself until you lose yourself, so also you cannot find excellent corporate worship until you stop trying to find excellent corporate worship and pursue God himself. Despite the protestations, one sometimes wonders if we are beginning to worship worship rather than worship God. 
As a brother put it to me, it's a bit like those who begin by admiring the sunset and soon begin to admire themselves admiring the sunset. I think that's a real danger. This is a temptation for the engineer and the Pharisee in all of us. There is a beauty in the order and the form, and we like to see everything in just the right place. And there is also a sense of self-satisfaction when we think that we've checked all the boxes. But life in communion with God and with one another is the essence of worship, and we we should have that. Now, when we have that, he is pleased even sometimes when we aren't. You should be able to worship God even if everyone else or the church that you're in isn't doing it just right. You have occasion to visit other churches. Maybe they're very different in the way they do things. Maybe you even know what's wrong with that. Well, you know what? You're here to worship God. Set all that aside right now and worship. In Diedrich Bonhoeffer's little book, Life Together, the classic exploration of Christian community, he warns of a similar threat to genuine community. This one hit home to me, I think particularly as a young man. I had all kinds of imaginations of what the the New Testament church looked like and how we needed to have that. So I had this ideal in my mind. Of course, that was before I'd spent a whole lot of time reading the New Testament and found out what the New Testament church was really like. Uh, but he said every, he uses a term here, uh, wish dream, and I think we, we could just substitute the word ideal. Every human wish dream or ideal that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community, and it must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself, becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself, and he enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. And when his ideal picture is destroyed... He sees the community go to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. And so we need to have a lot of grace and a lot of patience with one another. We're learning as we go. I think about the life of this church, uh, twenty, nearly 25 years from when we first began to meet. A lot has changed. Look, there's still problems, there's still people. There's still things to learn, still growth that needs to take place. We're moving, uh, and that's what growth is. We're changing. 
And while I'm quoting others, allow me one more from N.T. Wright. Worship is what we were made for. Worship is what buildings like churches and cathedrals were made for. If we get this right, we will go to our task of mission and management in the right spirit and for the right reason. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let the whole earth stand in awe of him. So to summarize, worship is the true center of every society. It's an inescapable concept. Everybody does it. Not everybody does it well. Not everybody does it correctly. God can't be worshipped rightly in any culture without that worship challenging and dislocating all idolatries and false ideas. So to focus on the right worship of God is to declare war. It is to throw down the gauntlet. And so we must be sure that we, are, we acknowledge the priority of God's rightful claim. The problem we've been facing in recent years is that we don't really view the church as the primary family from which every other family draws its name. But the church isn't an institution ordained to assist the family so that it does the work of the kingdom. It's the other way around. The family is an institution that is utterly dependent upon the church in order to be equipped and guided so that it can be a blessing to the world rather than a curse, which apart from the church, every family would be. The same is true for the state. The church holds the place of primacy always. Why? Because it is, in fact, the body of Christ, and then there could be no other place for it. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords. If loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is the greatest commandment, then assembling with the household of God on the first day of each week to corporately worship and commune with our Heavenly Father is the top priority. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, Let us consider one another in order to stir up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And so we start each week coming apart from the world, assembling with the people of God around the family table to remember who he is and what he's done and remembering who we are and, why, and what we're here to do. And the church of God, so the, because the church of God was purchased by the blood of Christ. Acts 20, 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves, speaking to pastors or elders, and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That's how valuable the church is. Again, not some invisible church, not some ideal floating in the air, but the church. And God has outposts all over the world meeting like we are today. Real people with names, faces, bodies, shortcomings, sins, Blessings, gifts, glories, all those things, he puts them together all over the place. And thus the church has the highest value. It's not simply some abstract, invisible entity that exists only in the realm of ideas. It's the real flesh and blood people, which is the body of Christ, into which we were baptized and into which, by covenant, we have pledged our whole lives. And when we allow other things 
to bump the church down the list of our priorities. For example, I had a busy week. I was tired. I need the rest. We had out-of-town company. We had tickets to the big game, and that list could go on and on. When we allow those things to bump the church down the list, then, whether we thought about it or not, we made a statement that the body of Christ and our part in it is, is not our real priority. And if you think that's an edgy statement, come back next week. One way to test our level of commitment to Christ and His worship is... By the way, not next week. Next week's Christmas. We won't have Sunday school. Next week, I think we're not having Sunday school, New Year's Day. But whenever we come back, in two two or three weeks, okay? I'll keep you on the edge of your seat there. Um, One way to test our level of commitment to Christ and his worship is is to substitute other things for the church and see what our answer would be. Uh, Would this other thing, that is my weariness, my company, my entertainment have kept me home from work. If this were a big event, my birthday party, a meeting with the governor, a wedding of a loved one, and so forth, would I have missed it for the same reason that I decided not to worship today? As long as we continue to see the church as part of our life instead of the center of our life, we will miss out, uh, we will continue to miss the point. As I'd like to say, church is not a slice of the pie. It is the pie. We are members of Christ. That's who we are, not just what we do. It's not just where we go. It's who we are, and we are that all the time. So every other part of our life are slices of that. Our family, our marriages, our children, our jobs, our Everything else we do is a slice of that pie. The local church is an outpost of the kingdom of God. It's his household, and our families are outposts of the church. A corporate community worship, then, is a top priority. And I want to close with this. Uh, And I asked the question, uh, I put a heading here, did I miss something? Sometime back, a brother in the Lord expressed his thankfulness for that day's sermon saying that it had especially hit home with him in an area of his life that he was struggling with, and that the Lord had used the message of his word to both convict him and encourage him in that struggle. I pointed out that if he had decided to stay home that morning, something this brother never did, then he would have missed that sermon, and he would have never missed having missed it. Now, to carry the point a bit further, this is also true of the sermons that are more routine. It's not just that you might miss a really good one or one that really hit home, but you'd miss the routine meals, too. The ones that don't particularly hit hard or address some special point or issue that you're struggling with in that particular moment. But if we skip those sermons, then we never miss them either. However, many of those sermons we skipped will be needed in the future, next week, next year, or some unexpected time, and we won't miss it. 
We will not realize we needed them, but we, in fact, did miss what God had for us to equip us, to face us for, to, to equip us for facing tomorrow's challenges. So when Christ speaks to his people, when he has a meal prepared for us, we need to show up, and we need to show up on time. When we come in late, what we said is, imagine you've prepared a dinner party, and you have an appetizer, and you have, a, have it set, a, t- a set time, and people show up halfway through the meal. What does that say? What message does that send to you about what they thought about you having invited them to a special meal? They've spent time all week shopping, preparing, thinking about it, setting the table, and you came in 30 minutes late. Hey, sorry, we're late. Yeah, okay, have a seat. We're going to be polite. We're not going to point that out. But it is frustrating when you prepare meal. So is the introduction to the lessons or to the sermons important? I don't know. Was your appetizer important? Was your salad, was your soup important to the meal that you prepared? Or just toss it away? Just so we show up for dessert. That's the main thing. We got there in time for dessert. So I know I'm hitting hard here, but sometimes we need to be hit hard. Our priorities, at the end of the day, we all do what we want to do. Are there exceptions? There's always exceptions. Flat tires happen. People get sick. There are all kinds of things in life that throw us a curveball that are exceptions. So I'm not talking about the exceptions. I'm talking about the habits. And the habits need to be first things first, right? And, they, and by the way, first things are first. They always are. So we find out what's first. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's hard hitting. We thank you that it makes us uncomfortable uh, because we need to be uncomfortable because you have a better way for us. You teach us uh, what's important for us because it's good for us. You give us your law because you love us. And when we love your law, uh, we benefit from that because that's why you gave it to us. So bless us now as we uh, fellowship and enjoy one another and as we prepare to come and uh, gather together to worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.